That's our that's our shtick. Well, uh, we are uh, continuing this week as we have all semester in uh, talking through the story of Scripture. The idea that all of Scripture, from beginning to end, is one great big love story. And tonight uh, we're going to take a turn because we're going from talking about creation and God's making of all things and us, uh, mankind, as part of that creation, to now talking about the fall. When everything starts falling apart, right? When things start to go wrong in this world. And we're going to look at that tonight. Um, as always, get out your little texting machines and have them ready. Text me questions and I'll answer, uh, well, attempt to answer your questions afterward um, as we go. So let's look down. There's a lot here. Uh, so I'm going to try and read it quickly. Uh, I kind of couldn't leave some of this out, though. So let's look down and read uh, first in Genesis 2 for a little bit, and then Genesis 3. And I've cut some things out, as you'll see with the ellipses. ellipses is a, I don't know that, how it's plural. Anyway, Genesis 2, beginning of verse 15. The Lord God took the, man, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Down to chapter 3. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat uh, out of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, but I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you, not eaten of, or have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the Lord God made, uh, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now let, uh, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and, and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Wow, that's a lot. Let's pray before we look at it. Lord God, help us now. Uh, send your spirit that we might understand, that we might know what is going on here. Uh, Lord, I pray that 
more than just know that we might be affected by this, that we might see our lives, our stories wrapped up in this great story. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we start tonight, a guy named Greg Johnson, who I've quoted before the semester, um, he's going to kind of set the tone for us. And he does it by, by kind of helping us paint a picture. And he says this, imagine a world um, where you wake up every morning excited, refreshed, full of joy, ready for what's about to come. Um, you go to breakfast with a friend or a group of friends, and you can eat, and you can share your lives together. Uh, there's no jealousy between uh, who's talking to this person, and they're kind of teaming up over there. There's none of that. You enjoy their company. It's kind of perfect fellowship. Uh, imagine a world where you never feel lonely, right? Where there's always people around. You don't have those deep aches in your souls, which, uh, if we're going to be honest, most of us have at some point during the day, right? You spend time with these friends in prayer, and you worship God together, and it's enjoyable, and it's never boring, and you're never wanting to just leave to go do something else. You always feel like God is near you and that he's with you. And after your time together, you go off to your class or your classes, or for some of you to your jobs, and you go and you work and you labor and you study and do all these things, and it's actually enjoyable. And you like sitting in class listening to your professors who are no longer boring. Um, you think that everything they're teaching you is like liquid gold, and you just have to hold on to it. You have to get it. Because why? Because you're training your mind, and you just know that once you have this education, you can go out and get a job that then will be fulfilling. And you can maybe one day even provide for a family, and your marriage will be perfect, and you'll have these great kids. All of this. You're completely satisfied in life. There's nothing left to want. It's holistic, and it's pure, and it's good. And in Genesis 3, we lose all of this. It all starts falling apart in what we've just read. Um, If you're keeping track at home, this is like page 4 of the Bible. 1,200 pages, this is page 4. And so we're going to talk about what happens actually in chapter 3 and why from that point on the world is no longer as I have described it. Where relationships are no longer easy. And they don't just come natural. And we are lonely. And some of us uh, want to date, but we never get asked out. Other of us are in relationships and we struggle in them. Why has this all happened? Well, we're going to see. And the way that I'm going to frame this tonight is by saying this. That things go from bad to worse to beautiful. So they go from bad to worse to beautiful. So things are bad. Let's talk about this in the first place. Um, The serpent said, or that we see in in chapter 3, verse 1, is Satan. Um, That's generally acknowledged and regarded by everyone to be Satan himself, who is an angel created to worship God, but who later rebelled against that state and who fell from uh, his heavenly worship. And he now is in the garden with Adam and Eve. And as it says there in verse 1, he was more crafty than all the other creatures. Why would it say this? Well, we're about to find out. Um, In verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2, so right up the top of your sheet, um, we read that, uh, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, when it says you shall surely eat of it, this is, I'm going to talk Hebrew for a second because it's important. I don't normally just spell it out there. But he says, you shall eat, eat of it. He says the word twice. And whenever the Hebrew language does that, it's emphasizing. It's saying, you've got to catch this. He's saying, I've given you all of the... God is talking to Adam. He said, I've given you everything for food. Eat, eat until your heart is content. I have given you abundant provision. I have made it good. 
right? We've talked about that. That God made his creation good. Eat, eat of it, Adam. And on the back end, he says, but do not eat of this one tree. Because if you eat of it, you shall die, die. He said, look, everything out here is good, but there's this one tree that you're not to eat from. And when you do, you will surely die. Certain death will happen when you eat of it, okay? So he's really stressing that. Okay. Um, he is, uh, he's looking at them, and he's setting up the parameters for their whole life. He's saying, my, my burdens and my commandments aren't oppressive. There's just this one thing that you're not to do. Don't eat of that one tree. Okay, why do I tell you this? Well, there's something we have to understand about the craftiness of Satan, the serpent in this passage, and, and Satan in our lives who's alive and well today in this world. We have to understand something about him if we're going to understand the Bible and if we're going to understand the story of Scripture and if we're going to understand our own stories. Because what Satan loves to do is to come and twist what the Bible says. Look, Satan knows Scripture. He knows the Bible. In the New Testament, we read that. It says that, um, that the demons know, right? And they shudder. That they know and that they use Scripture at different times and in different people's lives to manipulate and to twist. Well, that's exactly what happens here, right? And Satan will distort the Bible and God's truth at every possible chance to get us to believe something different or to bow down to some other God other than the God of the Bible. Okay. God's command in verse 16 and 17 um, comes to man. Adam was in charge, okay? He was the one who God put in place of the garden, and his commands go to him and say, uh, work it and keep it and all this stuff. So God had given the command to Adam as kind of the representative, and Eve comes later, okay? So it was understood that Adam would go and communicate to Eve, here's what we're supposed to do, okay? But here's what Satan does. He bypasses the kind of order that God had put in place, and he goes straight for the woman, Okay? He goes straight for the woman, ignoring God's kind of hierarchy that he had put over society. He goes for the woman. And he comes to the woman and says this in verse 1. He says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Grammatically, Satan really isn't asking as much as he's saying. He's saying this, Surely God didn't say you must not eat of any tree in the garden. Right? He's coming and suggesting to Eve, something that God didn't say. And he's twisting the words here, and we won't catch it unless we slow down for a minute. See, what he's saying is this. God, uh, God, what God said was, you may surely eat, eat of every tree of the garden. But Adam, or Satan comes, and he says, uh, surely uh, God said you should not eat. That he's already doubting God's goodness. Because God said, look, I provided a ton for you. Eat, eat. And Satan's like, surely he said you, you couldn't eat from any of the trees, right? He's starting to cast doubt into Eve's mind, okay? Casting doubt on, Eve, or on God's goodness. Satan is changing and manipulating God's word, okay? Ever had that scenario happen in your own mind, right? Where you're sitting there and you kind of, uh, maybe you're being tempted by something or uh, some of y'all are maybe with a, a boyfriend or girlfriend and you're starting to think, eh, I don't think scripture says I can't do this, right? And you kind of start justifying very quickly in your mind. Um, what you can and can't do. Or you may be in another situation and saying, well, the Bible doesn't, it doesn't spell out that I shouldn't act in this way or that I shouldn't do this, so this will probably be okay. Look, this is nothing new to us. Satan comes right along in our minds and starts kind of twisting Scripture and what it says and the commands that we know are for our good, and he's leading us into deceit and temptation, and that's exactly 
what happens here. And y'all, and Eve's being sucked in because we see in verse, verse 2 that now she's misquoting Scripture. God had just told her what is true, and she comes in verse 2 and says, um, we, may not, or we may eat, not eat, eat, of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, in verse 3, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay? She didn't say, die, die. Now what, this sounds stupid, right, as I'm sitting here repeating words, but this is what's happening. That Eve is doubting God's goodness whenever she doesn't say, eat, eat. And then she goes on the back end, and she's starting to doubt God's holiness when she's saying she's lessening the penalty of it. Whenever she just says die, not die, die. Okay? She's saying that God isn't, surely God isn't good, and he's not that concerned with his holiness and obeying him. She's distorting this, and it's becoming twisted in her mind. But the serpent now comes in verse 4. I don't normally just walk through these, but it's so important. Verse 4 says, the, the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. And what does he say? Die, die. He comes and says, Look, you're right. God's not that important. His holiness is not that important. You won't really die. That's what he's saying. God won't really punish you if you eat of this tree. Um, Satan, again, he knows God's word. He knows uh, how to use scripture and to change it. Uh, what's his alternate suggestion? What does Satan say in verse 5? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He looks right at Eve, right into the core of her heart and life, and says this. When you eat of that tree, you're not going to die. Surely you're not going to die, die. God's not going to be that serious. He's, he wouldn't be that mean. Furthermore, you'll be like God. And you'll know good and evil. Wouldn't God want that for you? Wouldn't God want you to be like Him knowing? Isn't He a good God? You can just hear Satan saying this. Because we've heard it in our own lives. In different times. Do you think God's withholding from you? Isn't God... Our friends will even say, that's stupid. God's withholding things from... Why does He make you not go out and get drunk? Why does He make you not cheat on a test? what's, What's up with Him? Is he just wanting us to be boring and, and not relevant in our lives and he's in, in the culture today? So when, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That's it. <laughs> That's the whole deal right there. They ate of the one tree that God said, don't eat of this one. And when you do, you will die, die. They took it and they ate it. And everything from the Christian worldview, everything in the world that is wrong and has been wrong for all time comes from this. And you're thinking, it's not that big of a deal. But it kind of is. Because God was serious when He said, you will die, die. Look, mankind was created to live forever. And when God looked at him and said, just don't do this one thing. And when you do, if you do, you will certainly die. Friends, they did, and death enters the world. It's not just physical death. It's spiritual death. It's emotional death. Everything starts to go wrong. It doesn't even look like... I mean, this all happened in like a minute or two. (laughs) This conversation, if you're saying it out loud, it is not a long conversation between the serpent and Adam and, and Eve right there. Adam was silent, by the way. Right? He was the one who was supposed to be speaking, and he's just 
it says he's standing there, but he's silent. He had given up on his kind of headship over Eve, and he's just sitting there chilling while Eve's, while the Satan's just kind of working Eve over, and he's just uh, distorting her and just all this stuff. And Adam's silent. Okay? But look, uh, we cannot miss what is at the heart of their disobedience in verse 5. It said that they want, in 5 and 6, it said they wanted to be like God. They wanted to know things like God knew things. They didn't want to just be His creatures. They wanted to be like the Creator. They weren't satisfied with just living in this good world, which was really good. And they had abundant food, abundant provision. They wanted to be God. They didn't like the secondary role He had given them. And what Scripture says is that from this point forward, um, that as Adam and Eve started having children, that from this point forward, sin was a part of, of mankind. That it passes down through anybody who ever walks on the, on the earth. And this is what Christians would call original sin. And it all comes back to this. And it's that no one is born innocent anymore. No, no child, as cute as they may be, is born innocent. And you don't have to be around children long before you begin to believe in original sin. <laughs> Because you will tell your child, uh, obviously I'm talking about Norcline, Norcline, don't stick your finger in that outlet. It will hurt you very badly. She may kind of not do it. You want to know what she does, though? The second you turn away, she starts going like this and looking to see if you're watching her. And you're just like, I don't know where she learned that. (laughs) Because Sarah and I didn't teach her to put her finger in the outlet, but she's doing it, and that's not good, right? It's in there. Original sin comes out very early on, okay? And we see that, and it's true. Uh, unless we think that it's unfair, that we just kind of inherit this. Because a lot of people say that, non-Christians will say that, and sometimes Christians will say that. It's unfair, this original sin idea. But look, if you were in that situation, you would have done the exact same thing. If you had someone, somebody who was wise and cunning and crafty in your ears, distorting Scripture... Um, distorting God's word to where it doesn't even really sound like he's saying anything different. And then he says, look, I'm going to give you the chance to be like God. You're doing it 100% of the time, and so am I. And so so while we may um, fuss and complain that it's not fair, that we just kind of inherit this, we would have done the same thing. Okay? We are no different than they are. And look, whether you're a follower of Christ tonight or not, I want to ask you this. Have you ever thought that God was withholding something from you. And if you're not a Christian, if there was a God, do you think that He's kind of withholding something from this world, from people in this world? Has God ever, you've ever looked at Him and said, God, why won't you let me do that? I really don't think you know what you're talking about right now. Why do you tell me I can't do that uh, when I go to that party? Or when I'm in class doing that? Why do you tell me that my identity shouldn't be all wrapped up in my resume? Why is that? See, I just want us to see that as you think and have those thoughts of God, that you're really asking the same thing that Adam and Eve were in the garden. Because that's exactly what they're doing. They're kind of starting to doubt God and say, you know, he's really not that good. Why, would he, why wouldn't he want me to eat of that tree? Why would he withhold that from me? And so they do it. And so they get take and eat, and they fall into sin. Friends, at the core of that is we really don't believe that if there is a God, or for those of us who believe that, the, that, the, that God is good, 
we think He's withholding from us. We think there's something out there that He doesn't want us to have. But He's already said from the the first couple chapters of Genesis that His world is good. I've given you every tree but this one. He is a good God. He's an abundant God. He provides. Why do we do this? Why don't we believe God is good? Sin is in us. It has affected the way that we think right now. It's affected our hearts. It's affected our minds. And we doubt Him. And we doubt His goodness. Because at the same time, we want to be like God. We want to be our own gods. And we think we know what is best for our own lives. Okay? That's what the fall has done in us. Okay, but cheer up. Things get worse. Okay, so (laughs) things get worse. How do they get worse? Well, let's look at some of the fallout of what's happening here. Okay? Uh, Look just at the next verse. Verse 7. Um, they had been together naked and unashamed, just kind of walking out there, chilling in their nothings. And um, all of a sudden, they look up and they realize, oh shoot, I don't have any clothes on. Right? They're naked, they're ashamed, and they run. And they make these um, loincloths. They take fig leaves and put them together and they start hiding. Um, have you ever had the dream where you're in a crowd and you're naked? Uh, it's one of, the ver- one of the most common dreams possible. It's just that you're in a crowd and you're the only one without clothes on. And it's terrifying. Even to think of it, if you hadn't had the dream, is terrifying, right? That's kind of what's happening. It's all falling apart. They realize that this is not right. I shouldn't be in this position naked. And so they go uh, scrambling for leaves. I mean, they're looking for anything. They've got leaves on, right? Um, Relationships start to go bad. That Adam and Eve to this point had had a great marriage. They apparently could enjoy being with each other naked and not worrying about what their bodies looked like. They weren't insecure about their body image. Um... All that. But we see that it starts to go bad here. So relationships start falling out. Um, in verse 17 and 19 later on, uh, we'll see that, um, or 16, that, um, that husbands will tend to dominate the wives. Right? Will tend to rule over them oppressively. In 17 through 19, childbearing gets tougher. That's actually a little earlier. But 17 through 19, the job that was supposed to be great um, for Adam and Eve now gets to be awful. And it says that, it's, that man is going to toil in his work from the sweat of his brow and all this stuff. So relationships go bad, childbearing goes bad, sex goes bad, work goes bad. It's all starting to fall apart. Verse 8, um, before the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed God's presence. Um, not only did they have perfect relationship with one another, they had it with God. What are they now doing? They're running from God. Okay, they're, they're hiding from Him. And He comes after them saying, where are you? They've been hiding. Okay? Ever had, um, this isn't hard for us either, because at times we've had God pop into our minds at really, really inopportune times. Where we're just like, oh, hey God, kind of wish you wouldn't have showed up right now. Uh, that's really inconvenient. What do we want to do? We want to run. We want to do something to get him out of our mind and we'll suppress it and we'll push him away. That's what's happening. It's part of the, fall from, the, it's the fallout from sin is that we want to run from God. Verse 12 and 13, just quickly. Um, Adam and Eve are in the garden. He goes to Adam, who had passively, in his passivity, and silently just abandoned his role to be over Eve. And um, Adam's really nowhere to be found. And then when God comes to Adam and says, what did you do? He starts blame shifting. I love this part. It's back and forth. He's like, e- God, the woman who you gave me, because last, last week he's praising God for Eve. He's like, woo, woman of my, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she's hot. And he's basically rapping because he's so happy for Eve. <laughs> I just got to do it, Charlie. Okay. 
My 75-year-old systematic theology professor talked about that verse, and he says that when Adam says that, when he looks at Eve and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, a 75-year-old man stands up in front of a class and goes, he's basically dancing, and he's saying, she's got the beat, and he's doing this, and, and that's what's happening. Adam couldn't, be, he, Adam would dance like that for his wife Eve. And now he's looking at God saying, God, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. And so he's blame shifting. He blames God, then he blames Eve. So God goes to Eve and says, well, what, what do you think? And Eve says, uh, uh, that Adam, or the serpent did it. The serpent came and tempted me. And then finally, at the very end of this whole thing, she says, and I ate. That finally, when she can run, no, there's no one else to blame. God's been blamed. Adam's been blamed. The serpent's been blamed. I did it. I did it. So she finally owns it at the end. Um, if you can't relate to that kind of cat and mouse game, the, the blame shifting and putting off, I would invite you to uh, the, the next fight that I have at home with my wife, where I've done something wrong, obviously, and she comes to me and says, Brent, you've done this. Y'all... You've never seen somebody blame shift so much. It's really sad. I will blame everyone. I'll blame her. I'll blame Nora Klein. I'll blame y'all. I'll blame it on my work. I'll blame it on anything. And at the end, when there's no one else to blame, I'll look up and say, usually in tears, saying, yeah, I did it. And I did it because I'm selfish. Or because I thought I knew what was best and I didn't want to consult you in this. And you get to the end of yourself, and someone has to own it. Look, even non-Christians, people who write books about business, they realize that if there's ever going to be reconciliation at all in a relationship, that someone has to own it. Someone has to stop running from the problem and just say, I did it. And they have to usually take the fall out of that. Sometimes jobs are lost, sometimes whatever. Oftentimes in marriage, um, there's difficulty. It's like, well, why'd you do that? I don't know. I wish I wouldn't have. How long are you going to run? How long will you run from the blame shifting that you do in your own heart and in your life when you know that God is pursuing you? And friends, as we're going to see in just a minute, He's not pursuing you because He wants to make you feel bad. He's not just pursuing you to shame you, which is what sinfully your heart will tell you, and it's what de the devil wants you to think, that God's just going to come to belittle you and to put you down. Look, you can finally stop running from your sin because there is a gracious God who is pursuing you. But friends, things go from bad to worse to beautiful in this picture. And Ricky Jones, who's the pastor here in Tulsa at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, says this. He said it um, on just a Facebook status update uh, last week. He said, you can hide a lot of sin behind a busy schedule. And you can run from a lot of things by keeping busy. But it was on the heels of, obviously, the, the snowstorm. And he said, uh, but I see a certain grace in winter. What he meant was this. That when you've got nothing to do, <laughs> when you literally can't be busy, you can't make yourself do things. You're kind of uh, caused, you have to look at yourself. You have to look at your life. You have to slow down and, and think about what all I've been running from. And that's why, f for most of us, those two weeks 
or at least the, the week we were out of class, it was really hard. And I talked to y'all about it. And I myself, it was really hard. I'm, I called Ricky, who's, he's kind of my boss. And I said, Ricky, it was like Thursday, and obviously there's still 20 inches of snow on the ground. Ricky, um, I'm trying to go to campus. And he's like, why? And I said, well, I, I think I need to. And he said, no, you don't. He said, you need to be at home and be taking care of your family because they can't leave the house. And, y'all, I was looking for something. I was trying to run away from just the, the letting things catch up and from having to think about things at home. And that, things at home weren't bad. I'm just saying this is what we do. We run and we run. And we fill our schedules with things so busy, or at least we tell others or we tell ourselves we're so busy so that we don't have to see who we really are and how sin has affected us. Friends, there is a gracious God who comes and pursues. He's not coming to pursue us to shame us. He's coming to pursue us to love us. He's coming to pursue us to love us. Most people think that the God of the Old Testament that we find in the Old Testament is a mean God. And that He's evil. And we see all the wars and they say, oh, He's a bad God. I like the New Testament God. And for some of you, that may be why you want to read the New Testament. Because you're like, yep. I can kind of deal with the Jesus thing a little easier than this God in the Old Testament. What I want to tell you is it's the same God. It's the same God from beginning to end, and we see it like this. We see grace all over the passage. Let's look in verses 9 through 13. Y'all, after the fall, who, what happens? God comes after Adam. God pursues Adam in his state of sin and fallenness. God initiates he comes looking, Adam, where are you? God comes for him. Because he knows that if things are going to be made right, that God is going to have to pursue. Look, that's our story. We don't naturally go looking for God. Right? If you're not a Christian here, um, and people have said, you just need to go find God. Part of that is true. But look, it is way more the other way around, that God is the pursuer. God comes after us. He comes after His people. And He questions them, knowing full well what happened. Why does He question Adam? Because reconciliation and redemption were necessary. Someone had to own it. Someone had to finally stop and say, I did it. With no one else to blame. And until that happens, you can't have healing. You can't have a relationship be put back together. So why does He do this? Because God is a loving God who pursues His people in the midst of their sin. He comes after us again, again, and again. In verse 16 through 19, God doesn't just kill them off. He could have, right? He could have started over. He could have looked at me and said, eh, you failed, we're done here. But He doesn't. What does He do? He starts uh, providing for them in different ways. And we see this. He makes, um, he makes a loincloth for them, right? In verse 21, He goes to them and, and He clothes them. They had on leaves, and he gives them permanent clothing. He gives them uh, animal skins. He says, this is what it's going to be like from now on. You better get something. You better not keep using those leaves. Those are, those are only good for about three days. Um, here, take this, take this goat skin. That would seem to be very uncomfortable. Um, take this. It's permanent. You're going to need it. Right? God is coming to them and providing for them. In verse 24, he says, God guards the tree of life in the garden with cherubim and a flaming sword. Why? This is, a weird, uh, this is a weird verse if you don't know what's going on. It says, so that Adam wouldn't go and eat of the tree of life. You'd be thinking, why? Does God not want Adam to live? <clears throat> it's no. It's because of this. 
That if Adam in his state of sin were to go and eat of the tree of life and live forever, he would live forever as a fallen, broken man. That he would. He would live forever as one who is unredeemable. Because he would have put the stamp on it. By eating that tree, from eating from the tree of life, he would have lived forever in his sin. There would be no hope for, for change. And so God, what does God do? He graciously guards them from that. Says, no, don't come near this. You don't want that. Okay? But there's the biggest grace yet that we, don't, we haven't even talked about. And most of us have probably skipped over it. Look in verse 15. God already had a plan to free his people from the bondage to sin from the beginning. Where do we see this? Verse 15. God looks at the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God looks at the serpent, Satan himself, and says that even though yours will be a crippling nuisance to mankind, you will nip at his heel the days of his life. The woman's offspring, it is a singular masculine word there, the offspring of the woman will crush your head, Satan. That there will come a man who crushes your head, Satan. Friends, this is the whole story of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. That God has already provided a way out. This is it. That God pursues sinful humanity. And He comes in Genesis 3.15 and promises a Redeemer. He promises a seed of a woman that would one day be born that would crush Satan's head. It would be a mortal wound. Satan would not win. The woman's seed would. We'll close with this. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 8, Jesus is there called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. That can only mean this. That before anything was made, as God was Himself in perfect trinity, before He made anything, Jesus knew that He would have to die for mankind one day. He was slain before the foundation of the world. It was guaranteed that Jesus would have to die. Why then would God not stop making all things? Why wouldn't He have just said, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do that to my son. I don't know. I don't know why I wouldn't, because I probably would have stopped. But there's something in there that speaks volumes about the depths of the mercy and love and pursuit of God and how much He loves His people, how much He pursues us, that Jesus Himself would take on, him, would take on man one day, would come to earth knowing that He was created to die. That He was coming to fulfill what was being talked about in Genesis 3.15. That God is not out there making us come find Him. He's coming to us. Jesus enters the story. God Himself comes into the story. And as Jesus was there in the beginning creating all things, He knew this. But that was okay. He knew that He would have to die and that was okay to Him. Because He loved us. He loved His people. And friends, there is no greater picture than when one lays down his life for another. When, he, when someone steps in, the, in front of traffic to save someone, what more could you do to show love? That's exactly what Jesus has done. He came and was perfect. 
and was killed as one who was, uh, was counted a sinner. Because why? Because in His death, we get His goodness. We get His perfection. And He did this because He loves us. Do you believe that that is the God the Bible's talking about? That that is the story of Scripture? He loves His people. He loves mankind. He loves you. Do you believe that? It's, it's the Bible's invitation to you. Come and know Him. Know that Jesus. Know that God. He's a loving God. Would you run to Him? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now, even as we sing this last song, we pray that You would grip our hearts. Lord, we don't want to leave here tonight the same. We pray that we would be changed. We don't want to pursue the same things that we pursue in life. We want to be changed. We want to... We want to feel something new. We want to know that there's hope in this world, that, that the end of my life isn't just the end. We need a new story. We need something to come and override the way we think about ourselves in this world. Would you do that now? Come and change us, even during this last song. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.